All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. This is still very early in Jesus' ministry, and the disciples have been following him for a short time. So not only is, uh, do they not really have uh, the depth of faith yet or perspective about who Jesus is yet, because you can look back in chapter 3 and see that he's just called them, but um, this is new. This is, this is a new experience. They're following him. They've left their jobs and their families. They're still in the same area because they're still in Galilee, and all of them were from Galilee. So this is a new experience as they're following him around. And um, kind of the first teaching that he gives them that Mark records is at the start of chapter 4, and uh, it's the parable of the sower. Now, uh, verse 35 tells us that this took place earlier in the day. So when you start chapter 4, it's the start of a day. When you get to the passage that we're going to look at in a minute, that'll be uh, kind of at, at dinner time, at, at evening time. So this is all one consecutive thing. And on that day, huge crowds had surrounded Jesus, and he had been teaching them about the parable of the seed. Now, very condensed version of that uh, is that the bottom line was that true disciples of Jesus Christ, true followers of Christ, are those who receive the seed of the word, those who receive the gospel, those who believe that Christ died for their sins, Christ took their place on the cross, Christ crucified their sins, and then he defeated sin and death and hell and the devil forever by rising from the grave. That's what we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks. But those who receive that gospel, those who receive that word, and then who bear fruit, who live by it, those are true disciples. That's the, that's the end line of the parable of the seed. But he said there are other people, many people, who receive the seed, and it has a different response, or they have a different response to it. And there are, there are basically three responses. One is that they reject it outright, that the devil has their heart and mind, that they walk in sin, they don't want anything to do with it, so they just dismiss it, and, and, the, and the seed, the word that's being spoken, the gospel that's being given, never ever takes hold. Then he says the second response is that people hear truth, but, but it never gets into their heart and their mind. They never allow it to take root. So while they understand and know the truth, and while they hear the gospel, they, they fall away because they have difficulty or they're in temptation or they just, they just don't want to respond to it. And then the third response is, is that people are so in love with the world and so in love with doing what they want to do that they hear the truth, but they don't accept it because they know that the truth is going to require a change of life and they just don't want to give into that. So that chokes the truth, the text says, that the truth never gets past their, their head and into their heart and, and they just fall away. Now that's a very quick summary, and the reason that I give you that is we need to know the context, because uh, the disciples are, are just learning, and he's teaching them how to walk by faith, and, and, and not to be selfish, and not to be distracted, not to be worldly. So, so they are just beginning in this process of following Christ to understand exactly what it's all about. And they need to know that because they're going to be exposed to a lot of people that are going to reject Jesus. A lot of people that will not believe or a lot of people that will say they want to believe but will fall away or who will be too caught up in their life like the rich young ruler that they, that they hear it with their heart and they think that makes a lot of sense but I just can't give in. But the crowd's not the only ones that need to know the truth. 
the disciples still are learning what it means to trust. And they're being called to trust Jesus completely. And they're about to get a test about the depth of their faith. One thing I've learned in 41 years of being saved is that the Lord will always and consistently test our faith. He'll always test whether it's authentic. He'll test whether it's resilient. He'll test whether we're going to endure in our faith. He'll test whether our faith is maturing and progressing. And he'll test whether our faith is unshakable. And I honestly believe that there's never a time in our lives where our faith is not being tested and refined in some way. There's never a break. There's never, well, it's Monday, so God's not going not gonna to test my faith to see how it's mature and test whether I trust. I get, I get Monday off, Tuesday maybe, and, and as we get toward the weekend, he'll, he'll kind of refine me more. No, it's every moment of every day God is trying to refine our faith because without faith, what happens? It's impossible to please God. So he wants our faith to be so strong and so rock solid and so resilient and so unwavering that nothing can shake us. No person, no temptation, no circumstance, no situation. He wants our faith to be perfect and complete. So he'll constantly push. He'll constantly refine. And there are many subtle ways that sometimes we don't even understand where he's doing that. Some are minor, some are major. This particular instance, starting in verse 35, was a major time. This was a significant proving ground at the outset for the disciples. So Jesus teaches them all day, and he tells this parable, and then it says a couple of verses back that he sat down with them privately, and he taught them more in depth. And then as night falls, he says, let's get into the boat, let's go back home to the other side of the lake. Now when we hear lake, when we hear Sea of Galilee, um, you may not have a, a clear perception uh, not having been there, of how big that is. When we hear sea, we think the ocean. When we hear lake, we hear lake, we think Lake Michigan, which is just like a mile down the street. So, so we have a perception of, of how big that is. But the Sea of Galilee is tiny. It's 13 miles long, and at its widest point, it's eight miles across. And I tried to get perspective of that. What does that look like on a map that we would know? So here's how big the Sea of Galilee is. If you start here at the church and you go south down to the Walmart in Summers, how many know where the Walmart in Summers is, okay? All right, so if you go from here to the Walmart in Summers and then you go the width from the lake to I-94, that's the Sea of Galilee. Okay, perspective now, you have a sense of it? So it's not massive, it's not this gigantic great lake, it's, it's small, so you really, when you stand at the end of the Sea of Galilee on a clear day, you can see the other end. You definitely can see side to side. So this is something that was familiar for them. They're, they're mostly expert fishermen who have grown up in the area. They've known this all their lives. They, they knew it like the back of their hands. So they know that there are times where swalls can come up, where, where the wind can change and be uh, adverse, and, and that um, there can be storms because the Sea of Galilee sits, sits kind of in a basin. It's 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills on three sides. The northern side, uh, excuse me, the southern side doesn't have hills, but on east, north, and west, there are, there are hills, not mountains, not rocky mountains, but just, just hills, a couple thousand feet high. So the way it's shaped and the fact that it 
um, is near Mount Hermon because a lot of times Mount Hermon, which is to the northwest, the wind, the cold wind will come over Mount Hermon and it'll kind of settle in the valley of the Sea of Galilee. And when that happens, when the cold air hits the warm air, how many meteorologists do we have? What happens? There's a storm, right? So storms were common on the Sea of Galilee. But these men, even as they get in the boat and maybe they see some storm clouds forming in the west, these men are not concerned. They know this lake. They've been out on the lake before in storms. This is not a problem. This is not going to really phase them. And besides, there are other boats along with them that, that could assist them if there's any kind of a problem. So while this is going to be a little dicey, it's routine. They get in the boat. They go across. And when they're out in the middle, they hit a storm that is far more significant than they would have thought. And the winds become very dangerous. And the water becomes so violent. And it's breaking so heavily over the the bow of the boat, that it's starting to fill with water. And now they're in a real dangerous situation. Even with their experience, even with their familiarity, now they're in a problem like they haven't experienced before. Now, trials and circumstances are like that, aren't they? One minute you're cruising along, one minute everything's going fine, and you feel comforted, and you feel safe, and you feel secure. And then in the next moment, something happens that's so disturbing and so disarming that all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, what just happened? I think that's what happened with this storm. It wasn't like they set out and it was already raining hard and they thought we'll just go through it. I believe when they got in the boat, the wind may have been blowing. Then all of a sudden, it starts to rain and the wind starts to blow. And they're in a situation where they just don't know what to do. When that happens, when, when life shifts and when trials come along, when circumstances hit, how do you and I react? And what does that reveal about our faith in the Lord? Because every time there's a circumstance that's contrary, there's a spiritual implication for us. Every time we hit a trial, we hit a crisis, there's something the Lord is trying to teach us. And sometimes even the smallest storms can overwhelm us. They rob us of our joy, and they uncover uh, uh, old habits that, that we haven't fully surrendered to the Lord, or they show a hesitancy to walk by faith. And that's really what it all comes back to. Everything comes back to, do I trust the Lord? I hear that this morning. Everything comes back to, do I trust the Lord? Not do I just trust him to save me. I hope everybody knows that this morning. I hope everybody understands what it means to be saved. And that's really the foundational question. Do I trust him to save me? But once we've trusted Christ and once we've received his grace and his forgiveness, we're then called to live by faith every day. Now, living by faith means that we trust that self-sacrifice is far better than being selfish and arrogant. Living by faith means that we trust that being holy and set apart is the only option, not one of the options, it's the only option versus sin and self-indulgence. Trusting in the Lord and walking by faith means being confident and that He's faithful even though what He's doing is unseen and even though we can't control it and it's uncertain in the moment, but that that walking by faith is wonderful and it's preferable to fear and worry and trying to be in control. See, those are just a few of the ways that, that we walk by faith. But, but there, there really is never a moment when we're allowed to be off the clock. 
You don't get Monday off from walking by faith. You don't get Wednesday night off from walking by faith. Our faith, as I said earlier, is constantly being proven or it's constantly being disproven. But it is always being tested. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples here. We're going to read in just a moment. He's trying to teach them and show them and have them experience walking by faith. And I want to tell you, in this text, they fail miserably. It's not just a poor performance. It's not like they made a C on the test. It's not even like they made an F on the test. They made a zero. There is nothing they do here, and I'm not being critical. I'm just trying to give context. There's nothing they do here that's right, and we'll walk through it in a moment. But aren't you glad God's gracious? Aren't you glad Jesus just doesn't dump them over the side into the water and say, you failed? God is gracious and God is wonderful. And he not only teaches them in a profound way, both by experience and by his word, but he teaches us, he teaches them so he can teach us. See, we're going to learn this morning by studying their reactions. And as we study their reactions, it gives us an insight into our own reactions. And it teaches us what not to do and what to do. And then, at the very end, we're going to learn by seeing His power, which hopefully will stir our faith and our conviction, okay? So we're just going to read seven verses this morning. This is a historical account. This is not a story, okay? It's not just something that Mark made up that sounded cool that would make people think highly of Jesus. This is a historical account that took place on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, ready? Verse 35, Mark 4. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, there are four main reactions that the disciples have. We're going to go through them very quickly. There are four main reactions that the disciples have. And then there are two spiritual principles that Jesus reinforces that I believe will challenge us this morning and will give us a clear point of assessment for our faith. So I want to encourage you to write some things down this morning. We're going to go through these four reactions, see if I can do this one-handed. We're going to go through these four reactions very quickly, and then we're going to look at these two spiritual principles at the end. But look at what the disciples do in response to this problem. Because again, this is a spiritual metaphor. This storm is a metaphor for trials and for difficulties and for circumstances and the refining of our faith. So look at how they respond. First of all, notice in verse 37 that they tried their best to handle the situation on their own. They tried their best to handle the situation on their own. Now, we know that that's true because they had enough time that elapsed for the boat to to be hit by the wind, to start breaking in the waves, to start filling in water, that all that happened as Jesus is sleeping in the back on a cushion. 
So we have to read into the text, and this is legitimate. We can do that based on the time frame that Mark establishes. We have to understand that they did what they'd always done. They used their experience, and they used their skill, and they used their knowledge to try to solve and overcome the problem. You know, there are patterns that we develop over time in our lives. There are ways that we handle difficulty. There are ways that we handle situations uh, and, and ways that we cope with issues and with people that define who we are and they define how we apply our faith. So what are your patterns? When difficulty comes, when somebody criticizes you, when you're under temptation, when you're facing a trial, what's your pattern of response? And what does the enemy know about you and what does he try to incite in you? Some of the responses are emotional. Anger, frustration, complaint, fear, discouragement, or just giving up. Some of the responses are actionable. Blame, revenge, violence, and trying to take control. Now, those are the negative responses. And those responses become part of our personal DNA. They're, they're what define us. They're how we're known for responding. If, if my kids know that every time uh, they do something that I'm going to fly off the handle and get frustrated and yell and, and respond in a certain way... They're going to learn that that's who I am, that that's part of uh, uh, what makes Paul Rhodes, Paul Rhodes. And they're either going to push that because they like seeing me fly off the handle, which can be fun sometimes, right? Or they're not going to get close to me and they're going to tiptoe around me because they don't want to see that response. So what's your habit? What, what's your DNA? What, what's your pattern that, that's responding when you fall into difficulty? And what do those patterns say about your faith? How is your faith represented? Because our first response, if it is centered in self, then it indicates that something's wrong with our faith. Look at the second response. They didn't go to Jesus first. They went to him last. They waited until the high point of the crisis, when the wind and the waves are, are at their greatest, and the boat's about to be swamped, and they've exhausted all the options that they can think of, and all the options that they're experienced uh, in, in handling a problem like this. And they do all those things first, rather than relying on Him the moment everything started. Now don't miss that, because it is a pattern that we tend to repeat over and over, even though we know the truth about the Lord's authority, and we know the truth about the Lord's sufficiency and about His provision. And we've seen God be faithful so many times. So many times God has been faithful to us, and He's provided, and He's answered prayer. And yet when we get into difficulty, a lot of times we get all stressed, and we get all worked up, and we try to look at all the options, and we talk to people, and we analyze, and we think through it, and we get stressed, and we cry, and we get frustrated. How much stress and anxiety would we save ourselves if the moment the problem began, we just ran to the Lord? I mean, think about that. How often do we actually do that? How often do I actually do that? That the moment something hits and we go, uh-oh, that's not right, something's off, that we race right to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to need your help because something's about to hit. The wind's starting to kick up. The boat's bobbing a little bit more in my life. 
Lord, I need your help now. But what do we do? Try to solve it. Try to be self-sufficient. Try to be independent. You know, the old hymn says it well. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. As believers, listen now, it should not be unusual to go to the Lord first. It should be our default. We should be so used to abiding in His presence that it's not a road trip to get to the Lord. We're already there. So look at verse 38, because the disciples finally say, all right, we have no other options. This is a horrible sentence. We have no other options, so let's go to the Lord. That's basically what they're saying. And when they go to the Lord, it's not soft, sensitive hearts. They're not like, oh, Lord, we're so glad you're here. Please help us. What do they call him? They call him teacher. Now, that word's not accidental. Because the word in the Greek language, I'm going to mangle this, is didaskalos. You say, who cares, right? Well, very important. Not a word in Scripture is wasted. Because they go to him and say, didaskalos, don't you care that we're about to die? And by using that word, it's, from the, it's the word from which we get the word didactic. Didactic is a style of teaching that's very sterile and scientific. It's like a professor teaching in, in university. Very didactic. Let's go through the notes and let's walk through this. And you need to know this fact. It's, it's almost scientific. So they go to him and say, didaskalos. In other words, teacher. Not Lord, not Savior, not Master. They say teacher. In other words, they're saying we still view you as a religious teacher. Now, one that's pretty awesome and one that teaches like we've never heard before. But, but their relationship with him is still teacher. And actually, it's not till chapter 8 where finally one of them says, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That only Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one from heaven. You're the one that's anointed. It takes them eight chapters. But here, in the crisis, in the middle of the storm, when they should be calling on the name of the Lord, they go and say, teacher. They're still thinking the wrong way. This fact of, of not going to Jesus first speaks to our habits of trying to be self-sufficient. Listen, we can't walk with the Lord and we can't walk by faith and still be self-sufficient. Those two things don't go together. And when we do that, when we keep trying to be self-sufficient, there's a, there's a spiritual stubbornness there that's rooted in our pride and it, and it hurts our faith. But here's an awesome, undeniable truth. The circumstances and the problems that we have and that we will face are never bigger than the Lord. And it is not even remotely difficult for him to deal with this. Look at the text. All he does is say three words. This is a violent storm. The boat's about to capsize. There's water. There's wind. There's screaming. There's stress. There, there's anxiety. They don't know what to do. They're at the end of the rope. They literally think they're about to die. And Jesus stands up and says, hush, be quiet. And everything goes flat. 
Now, think about that just for a moment. We sang, God of wonders beyond all majesty. Beyond all, what is it? Beyond all majesty. You are holy, holy. Universe declares your majesty. Did we just sing that? That's nice words. It's a nice song. I know that song. Yeah, that's great. Or, or were we really saying that? Because it's the same God we're talking about here. Jesus is completely calm. And he just speaks. And everything changes. Now, the prerequisite that God has for us is that he requires our faith. And in verse 40, look back at it. He says to them, you have no faith. And the word there, you know what the word no means there? Tell me what you think it means. It means no. Zero, nada, nil, zilch, nothing. You have no faith. Now, they could try to rationalize this. Well, Lord, we're new at this, and you just called us a chapter before, and we're still trying to figure out exactly who you are, and we barely know you, and, and this situation was life and death, and you don't understand how scared we were, and, and we're doing our best. And, 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 and Jesus says, no, I don't want to hear all that. You have no faith. You haven't trusted me. There is no evidence. If you look at the text, there's no evidence of trust here. They start by being self-sufficient. They move to panic. And then they move to blame and tell him that he doesn't care. That perfectly describes lack of faith. And how often do we fall back into that pattern? Maybe it's more subtle than we want to admit. But we have to be very honest. Is that our pattern? How spiritually stubborn are we? How, how self-sufficient are we? The answer will be revealed in by, uh, by our reaction to crisis. Is it calmness or is it worry? Is it prayer or is it panic? Is, is, it, is it faith or is it blame? See, the immaturity of the disciples' faith at this point is revealed in their third response because they start by trying to handle the situation on their own and then they don't go to Jesus until the very final point of crisis. And then third, the third thing they do is they conclude that Jesus doesn't really care. Now, we'd be hesitant to admit that that thought even crosses our mind. But the devil incites it. And it does cross our mind from time to time. And when it does, we need to reject it outright and say, Lord, remove that thought from even being in my body. See, the disciples miss the fact that when they go and blame Jesus for being asleep, they're saying, you're indifferent. And they forget the fact that he is there with them. He's not on the shore. He's in the boat. And he's not stressed. But the bigger picture is they forget who they're dealing with because this is the God of heaven in flesh. This is their Savior. And the fact that he even came here, the fact that he even took on flesh and came to save us and redeem us and adopt us and empower us is so far beyond our comprehension. So they go, oh, Jesus, oh, teacher, oh, teacher, aren't, aren't you going to help us? Why do you not care that we perish? And Jesus stands up and he says, stop it. And the wind dies down. And they marvel, who is this guy? Who is this guy? They didn't even understand that. He reminds them of his power. And he reminds them that God is never indifferent. Please hear that this morning. If you came in burdened or you came in feeling discouraged or there's something heavy on you right now, that God is not indifferent. He cares about what is going on in your life and in my life. 
and it really doesn't seem like he should because he has a lot to keep track of. I heard a statistic this week that one light year, I don't think I ever learned this in high school or college, one light year is six trillion miles. Six trillion miles. And the observable universe is 46 billion light years. Now, I did the math by hand. That is the number 276 followed by 21 zeros. That's just the observable universe. Scientists think that the universe is actually three times that wide. They think it's 153 billion light years. And the Lord created that, God of wonders, beyond all galaxies. The universe declares, your majesty. God not only created that and controls that and names every star, but he's Lord over all of it. But we think the Lord can't handle our problems. 153 billion times 6 trillion. I, I didn't do that math. God controls all of that. But listen to what he says. He says, I'm acquainted with all your griefs. He says, I hear every prayer. He says, I know every thought. He says, I watch over you while you sleep. And he says, I have fresh mercy waiting for you in the morning. He says, I know your trials. And he says, I love you enough that I allow them and even design them because they're going to help you trust me more and be more like Christ. He never takes a break. He never looks away. He's never on vacation. So it is really the height of arrogance and the lowest point of our faith to think and to say God doesn't care. The disciples come to him. Teacher, you don't care. We're, we're dying. And God is so patient. Aren't you glad God's so long-suffering? Jesus stands up, and I don't think there's a, a moment of anger here. He just says, all right, everybody calm down. Wind and waves, calm down. Everything goes flat. The boat has been doing this, and water's been sloshing in, and the wind's been blowing the sails, and they're starting to tear away. And all of a sudden, it's completely still. And they're going... And Jesus says, why don't you have any faith? See, their fourth reaction was that they were driven by fear. And fear always suppresses and damages our faith. Our faith should be boosted by the fact that he's Lord over all. That's why he calls them out over their lack of faith, not because they were afraid of the storm. The storm was scary. It was significant, and he calms it down so they can get focused. But he also questions their faith because they feared the power of the storm more than they trusted in the power of Jesus. So he says to them, look back at the text. There are very few red letters in this text. He says, why are you afraid? And the, even that sentence is revealing because the word he uses here is not the word for visceral fear, like it's a major storm, we should be scared. The word he uses here means timid and cowardly. It's used five times in the New Testament. So he comes to them and he says not, hey, why are you guys so scared of a storm? He says, why are you being cowards? 
And the context is key because that is what he had said earlier in the passage, earlier in the day, that many will do when the time has come to trust in him. They'll fall away in trials. They'll fall away in difficulty. They'll fall away in persecution because they fear the problem more than they fear the Lord. And that's why he questioned them. And that's why he says, your faith is insufficient. You accuse me of being insufficient, but let me tell you, your faith is insufficient. And when that lack of faith, when that looking at the problem becomes greater than trusting in the Lord, if that goes unchecked in our life, and that goes unchallenged in our life, listen very carefully, that will destroy your faith. If you allow doubt, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, the devil's lies, the devil's temptation, if you allow all of that to, to just kind of wander through your heart and not be rebuked and not be calmed down and not be submitted to the Lord, it will damage your faith to a great extent. Because fear is a powerful force, but faith is far greater. And he calls us to faith. And that brings us to the conclusion. That brings us to these two important spiritual principles that we need to take with us today. One is a point of evaluation. And the other is a point of encouragement and, and, and exhortation. Because the constant battle against our trust in Christ is a fear of the cost. So let's draw two spiritual principles here. The first one's a point of evaluation. The first truth is that faith is marked by a calm spirit. Oh, this one's hard. Faith is marked by a calm spirit. Look at the text, verses 38 and 39. There are two examples of calm in the text. In verse 38, Jesus is completely calm. He's completely unfazed by this violent storm to the extent that he's sleeping through it. He's not worried. He's not fearful. He's not stressed. God doesn't get stressed because he's in control of everything. So Jesus is calm. And then we see in verse 39 that when he rebukes the wind, I love this four-letter phrase. It says, it became perfectly calm. I don't think that second phrase ever hit me as hard as it did this week because this is a spiritual metaphor for faith that once we trust his power and once we experience his provision everything becomes perfectly calm. Because faith is trusting in what we don't yet see but know the Lord will do faith has to be marked by a calm spirit. But that calm, listen now, it's very important. That calm is not just available after the storm stops. That calmness is produced by faith, which means it will always be there. Our faith will be unshakable before the storm, during the storm, after the storm. We can be completely calm. Why? Because we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And when you look at him in the text, he's not frantic. He's not stressed. He's not crying. He's not anxious. He's completely calm in the middle of a desperate situation. And remember, he's fully man and fully God here. And he stands up because he knows that his power transcends any problem. And he says, calm down. And he's not just talking to the storm. Calm down. 
You're told to rest in me and wait patiently for me. And you've been told in Scripture that you men know that the Lord camps around those who fear him and rescues them. And you've been told that when you wait upon the Lord, your strength is renewed. So disciples, shh. Stop striving. Be still. Because I'm Lord. If, if you are in crisis this morning, if you're burdened and feeling heavy weight on your soul, if your faith is struggling, I want at the end in a couple minutes to have a time of prayer. I want you to come forward and we're going to pray for you. But, but hear what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. The Lord will help you if you trust in Him. And if you wait for his answer, he will strengthen you as you wait. And then he will work all things together for good because you love him. You can trust him. You can rely on him because he is faithful. And as we trust in the Lord, we need to trust him with a calm spirit. Now, our mind throws up objections to that. Well, you're going to lose control. And the devil says, you're such a sap. How could you trust in God? Look at all the things that are going on. And we hear accusation and we fear what's going to happen if we rely on the Lord and our fears kind of get in the way and we got all worked up. And Jesus says, shh. Be calm. Because faith is marked by a calm spirit. And then there's a second amazing spiritual principle. Let me give this and we'll pray. That when we trust in his control, our confidence isn't reduced, it's reinforced. When you trust in the Lord's control, your confidence isn't reduced, it's reinforced. The enemy has been fighting that truth since the Garden of Eden. That yielding control to our loving and faithful and gracious Lord is not a cause for fear and it's not a cause for panic. It's a road of joy and blessing and security. And that may seem counterintuitive. If I give up control, how am I going to be content and at peace? That's why the Holy Spirit gives us a new nature and a renewed mind because we will never be more confident and we will never be more content than when we trust the Lord with all we have. You will never be more confident. You will never be more content than when you trust the Lord with all you have. The enemy says that's ridiculous. The old self says that's scary. But faith brings calmness. Fighting the wind, fighting the waves, desperate, feeling like they're dying. And in a moment, everything gets perfectly calm. Why? Because they called on the name of the Lord. And what's the line? My God is faithful. He's faithful. It's such a simple promise. But we don't always trust in it. And when we don't, we just live in anxiety and fear and confusion. Instead of calmness and confidence in his presence.